Hey everyone, today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by CraneShares. Learn about their KRBN ETF at craneshares.com forward slash KRBN. Now to the day's top analysis of today's markets. Is the Fed damned if they do and damned if they don't? Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Tuesday, March 21, 2023. I'm Ash Bennington. Today, I'm joined by Jeremy Schwartz, Global Chief Investment Officer at Wisdom Tree Asset Management. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Ash. Pleasure to be with you. Well, I apologize for having you on on such a slow news week. I know there's not a lot <laughs> happening out there. Nothing uh, to talk about. Nothing at all to talk about. Looks like uh, we're going a little bit risk on here at the end of the day. Uh, S&P, NASDAQ, uh, and uh, Dow all up. I'll call it between approximately 1% uh, and about 1.5% on the day. Lots happening. Obviously, major decision coming from the Fed tomorrow. Jeremy, big picture, where do you think we are right now? Well, you know, there's all these questions about with this banking panic uh, and crisis, how much is resolved, how much is behind us. Uh, and, and we can talk more about all the issues, what they really need to do to, to solve some of the issues. There's a lot to, to discuss on that. Uh, clearly, the Fed meeting, I, you say the positive silver line, if you take a positive view, and I do think the Fed's going to go 25 tomorrow. Uh, that is largely what's now priced into the Fed fund futures. And we were thinking that, you know, coming into this week, that absent a much bigger crisis blow up, and credit, say, is credit Swiss part of that? Not Maybe not really. Uh, but the 25 base points was going to be, the Fed's going to say they've got the tools to deal with financial stability. They're still sticking Today's with the Today's show is sponsored fight, by But they're going to be dependent. You know, they, they're going to look at this uncertainty. We expect them to pause at the next meeting. We actually think they could be cutting soon thereafter. Um, you know, because our view was that inflation was coming way down, much more than the official statistics say. We were calling for the Fed to pause coming into the year. Now, the employment data stayed very robust, so it was hard for that narrative to come in the data. Our narrative was, was definitely challenged even ahead of this crisis. Um, but, you know, I think the certainly this it got to lead to some tightening of the conditions. I mean, there, there's some economists have pointed out saying, it's as much as six tightenings. Uh, the Apollo chief economist put out a note saying 150 basis points of hikes from tightening lending standards. You, uh, the other side of that trade, you would say, well, rates are falling. I mean, the two-year is falling. The, they're expecting cuts now in the market. The mortgage rates are falling. They're going to fall more because of how much, you know, just long rates have fallen. So there is some elements that, you know, financial conditions have loosened. So Powell could really make, you know, to your point, like Powell could make any you know, and rationalize, and it would make sense. You know, you, it would make sense if he continued his inflation fight and went 25. It would make sense if he paused and said, we need to see the cumulative impact of our tightening because we've already tightened so much. We've got to see the impact. And, you know, obviously he is seeing the impact. Um, you know, I, but there's, and, and there's people who, who worry that if he were to pause now, does the Fed know something that's much more concerned they should stick course like the ECB hiked 50 that's largely why we think they're doing the 25, even though, you know, again, we think inflation is no longer an issue and they should be pausing now. So let me bring it in uh, to uh, sort of layman's terms here. Uh, obviously, right now, the current federal funds rate between 450 and 475, 475 is the upper bound. Uh, expectations in terms of what's priced in looks like going to five 
base, 500 uh, basis points, 5% even. But this is the point you were making on the forward curve. I'm looking right now at the expected future path of the three-month average Fed funds rate on the Atlanta Fed website, a great alternative to see this if you don't have a Bloomberg terminal. Uh, and what you see right uh, very clearly is it rolling down. Uh, down uh, when we look, get out to 2025, uh, the expected average, 294. I mean, 200 basis points lower. So what do you make of this weird environment where the expectation is that the Fed is going to hike and then we're going to see, uh, you know, essentially uh, all of these rate hikes, uh, all these rate cuts, I should say, uh, for uh, going forward, uh, 425 or rather 8 at 25 if it's 200. I mean, these are these are really wild, like almost meme stock swings that we're seeing uh, in the uh, two-year Treasury yield, something that uh, has been bandied about on Twitter today, the idea of the two-year Treasury as a meme stock. Uh, how do you price, think about, and yeah. understand all this volatility? And that's another big point, great point, Ash, on, you know, people have wor said, are we going to get the VIX capitulation, the VIX being the volatility index, being one of those fear gauges, and people have been waiting, well, do we know the, the pain is over until VIX spikes above 40, above 50? Those are like the real signs of panic, and there's all these other interrelated questions of people now trading those zero DTE, the zero date options, and is that suppressing the VIX? But what is not suppressed is bond volatility. The move index has been like all, you know, really, really high levels in terms of just the overall level of bonds. You're seeing swings in that two year that you ha you really haven't seen in a very, very long time. Um, so the macro trades are back uh, and, and understanding those pressures are there. I mean, I, we do think what now being priced in futures is is directly, our, we agree with that. And, and with anything, I would probably say, our view on inflation was it was so backwards looking. The Fed was so backwards looking. They missed the big pop in 2021 when they should have been much more aggressive when real estate was going off the charts. And then when meme stocks were going off the charts, when when everything was flying, there was a lot of inflation in the system. They were saying it was transitory. Now they're stuck with this. Inflation is very high. And our view is that it's coming back in serious fashion, particularly if they used real-time data on housing, which is a big part of the core CPI. I mean, as much as 40% of core CPI is numbers that are just ridiculous, that are not anywhere near reality. Um, you know, reality would say housing is coming down. It's come down for like five to six months in a row. And core CPI would be coming down five months in a row, not printing at like 5% annualized rates. If you look at the trailing three months, it would be like zero to negative and more negative. So. You know that our, that's partly been our view on on where the inflation fight was missed before. They're now overly fighting. So again, we would like them to pause. They'll still go 25 because of you know their narratives. They haven't come to this new narrative. Although, although Powell is, you know, to his credit, did say we're looking at core services x shelter because of all this commentary people like us have been giving on housing. You know that he's recognizing housing is distorted field. It's going right. to come back over the course of the year it just baked in the cards um and and you know but it's going to still print high you know the official data will still print high for who knows how many more months maybe another six months maybe longer but the real-time data is coming way down so you know hopefully you know you can say again the silver lining is that they're going to have to do less and so if, if the fed was one of the big risks it's much better that this crisis came sooner than later and it's waking them up to, you know, the issues that they've been creating.
Yeah, I was reading Diana Olek over at CNBC, who really is great on housing. Uh, her headline is, home prices spiked 14.5% in February as the median price drops for the first time in over a decade, uh, with rate pressure being cited as one of the primary drivers. Yeah, I mean, yeah, okay, so they've cooled off a little bit, but rates are still way higher than where they were. And, you know, so you had a 40% increase in home prices from March of 2020 to March of 2022 with the Case-Shiller Index. That's been backing off just a few percent. Uh, you know, you wouldn't be surprised to see that back off 10%. I mean, there are people who say, hey, there's just not enough supply. There's still strong underlying demand. And, you know, I'm sympathetic to that argument that there is there is not a huge amount of supply and the demographics do have a longer term tailwind for housing demand. And so that's, you know, you say, hey, maybe that's the reason why housing prices aren't falling more is that there is still underlying demand and COVID has changed all sorts of housing consumption needs. Um, you know, people are, you question how long this work from home trade will last, but it's been lasting and surprising. And so that in some ways has increased demand for housing in in, in many ways. Uh, but the, the higher mortgage rates, is no question is a direct cost on you know how much home you could afford and so right. we would we would expect the housing to still come down maybe 10 percent from the peak yeah i've said this before on the show people don't generally uh, price houses in terms of purchase price they price them in terms of monthly payment uh, and obviously interest rates being a huge constituent of that by the way i don't know if we can get the chart up uh, on the screen on such short notice but i was just looking at the s p uh case shiller uh the u.s national version of that index and what you see is this obviously this just parabolic spike upward and then a leg down uh so as you pointed out clearly this is from uh this massive massive boom not just in the post-covid era uh i should say not ju just during the covid era post-covid being the slight rollover that we're seeing now but also really uh since the beginning of the 2007-2008 uh, ultra accommodative monetary policy and there it is up on the screen because we have absolutely amazing producers who are able to turn this stuff around really quickly you, you want to know an interesting factoid about the Case-Shiller increase is it went up about 40% from March of 2020 to March of 2022. Do you know also went, what went up about 40%? The money supply, the M2 money right. supply from March of 2020 also went up just about 40% over the same exact time period. Now, this is the indicator where I said the Fed should have been a lot more worried about inflation in 2021 than they were, they say the money supply has no relationship to inflation. It's very baffling that they say that. But this is also why now the money supply M2 is going down. You could pull that up on there too. And it also would show it's going down. And you know the year over year is going down at levels you haven't seen since the Great Depression. I mean, this should really concern the Fed. And this is symbolic of what's going on in the banking situation in many ways. I mean, the money supply down 2%. You want the money supply growing 5% a year um, during the 70s and 80s. You know, the money supply was growing 10% a year, basically. And you had inflation of 7 7.5%. And the difference was the real growth in the economy. Uh, you, you know, when you talk about 2 to 3% inflation, Two to three percent real growth in, in the economy. That's what gets you the five percent money supply. Again, the money supply is now declining year over year. That should concern the Fed. And, and what does that represent? It represents that banks are going to be making that banks are making less loans. You know, they're supplying less loans to the economy, uh, and and that's a reflection of the tighter monetary conditions. Um, you know, in in COVID, we had all these relief measures, all this fiscal support to support the economy, which was needed. The Fed financed it by buying all the bonds, keeping interest rates 
much lower than they needed to be. And so the Fed had a role. I mean, the government was creating the fiscal stimulus that put the money in people's checking accounts. Now it's sort of too tight. You know, the loans, the cost of borrowing too high and people are taking out less loans. Uh, and, and, you know, and there's no question all the current situations are going to lead to more of that tighter. Right. This goes back to Torsten Stock's point that tighter lending standards could be as much as six cumulative rate hikes, which is a, just a just a, such a big number. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Let's just go back for one second to the Case-Shiller chart, if we could bring that back up, uh, because I wanted to make this point while you're talking about historical comparisons. Uh, we'll just wait a second so we can get that up on screen if we can. Uh, but what's interesting about that chart is you see that little hump uh, peaking out, whatever it is, late 2006, early 2007. That was the greatest housing bubble in the history of the world. Uh, and then you see that parabolic upside after the uh, that gray bar there, which represents a recession when you start to see ultra-accommodative monetary policy. And then you see this massive parabolic roll up uh, from, you know, beginning around, uh, oh, call it 2009 or thereabout. You know, it's, it, it's and, and the, the, the cost of that, as we've talked about, is a key factor. I mean, I, I definitely thought about myself, you know, how much are you paying on interest? How much less are we paying today versus what, what we had before? It, it's definitely a key factor, as you said, that you're, you're thinking about your interest servicing costs as a right. really a key factor. Um, in terms of the, you know, how much extra housing demand do we have from the pandemic? I don't know if you have a view on on the supply issue versus demand, how much of the support will come from just this lack of supply that that people talk about in, the, in their local markets. I'm not smart enough to understand the structural dynamics of supply and demand in the housing market, uh, but I always love having experts on uh, these shows to talk about them. By the way, I just wanted to bring up this other chart that you mentioned there, uh, which is the velocity of the M2 money stock, where you do see that uh, dramatic, dramatic collapse uh, there uh, that we're looking at right now. I don't know if that's up on screen, uh, but just to bring that up, really a quite, oh, there we go. Beautiful. Uh, a quite striking chart to your earlier it's point. And so the velocity is one thing and the level of the money supply is another. So this, there's this formula, MV equals PY. So velocity is the V in that formula, MV, M is the money supply number. And so the two of those, the, the, or the changes, when you, when you do, the, when you do the, 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 the change in money supply, the change in velocity should be equal to the change in inflation, the change in the real growth in the economy. So velocity is another variable uh, that's sort of independent of the money supply variable. Yep. But the, you know, and, 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 and certainly you saw that collapse. It's been trending down for some time. That, that's, that you, you could argue is a deflationary force, even if money supply was constant. Um, you know, there's a question of should it resume back upwards to some of the trend with the reopening of the economies? You know, some of it shut down because, you know, we shut down the economy. And that's obviously where you see the, the 2020 fall off the cliff. Um, but, you know, it, I, the, the money supply number itself is another number, is the one that you want growing at 5% a year, um, essentially. 
Yeah, as you say, uh, that uh, basic money MVP equals PQ equation, uh, talking about the relationship of pricing uh, to uh, to the, the velocity of the money relative to the actual aggregate supply of the money supply. Uh, so let's take a look. I wanted to talk this through and bring it back uh, to kind of the current news cycle where we are lots of really interesting context on macro, but I want to bring this back to where we are tomorrow. Uh, this is a clip from a conversation that I had with Nurel Rabini airing live, uh, or I should say aired uh, today, one day after it was filmed yesterday on the Real Vision platform. This is a deep dive, Nurel Rabini, risk in the age of bank failure. This is a conversation I had with Nurel yesterday. Uh, let's take a look at the clip. Now, whether the Fed is going to stay on hold this time around or raise rates by 25, 50 is off the table, uh, in some sense, uh, doesn't matter because the, even if you do zero or 25, you're sc still going to be in trouble. Be in trouble because inflation is still too high and you should be raising rates all the way, not just to five, you have to raise rates all the way to 6% if you're serious about inflation. But with rates already in the 4.5 range, we're already seeing cracks in the financial system, let alone if you were to go to five five and a half and six. And therefore this trilemma to fight inflation, we're gonna cause a recession and a financial crisis now has become worse given the events of the last uh, couple of weeks. And either way, we're gonna have a hard landing of the economy and of financial markets. Central banks are damn if they do, damn if you don't. They were in a pickle before, they are now in a worse pickle. So there is no easy way out of it because the forces that lead to inflation are there, the forces that lead to recession and stagflation are there, and the forces that lead to financial instability, high private and public debt are historic. They've been going on for decades, so you cannot resolve them overnight. So either way, you get the hard landing of the real economy and or of financial markets. Sobering remarks from Nuriel Rubini talking about this as a trilemma, an impossible trinity, the idea that you're trying to balance price stability uh, with uh, not creating an economic collapse while simultaneously attempting to solve for bank solvency. Quite a, quite a framework that he's bringing to the table. The, you know, I'll, I'll say two things on that, if I can, Ash. I mean, I, I think one is, you know, you, I, I gave my view that inflation's coming down, so the Fed should be pausing. I, I don't think they have to really worry as much, but hey, that, that'll that be proven out over time. What does inflation actually do over the next 12 months? And, you know, and we see the impact of their tightening. But the, the question on the banks, I mean, is where I'm actually probably share some more concern, and not because I, I fear for their solvency today, and I think people should be panicking about their bank deposits. I mean, I think we're going to take more measures. I think that eventually we'll raise the FDIC limit. I think they're going to do, they showed very qu quick action in the scheme of things for getting, you know, for putting Silicon Valley bank depositors, mines at ease, as, as well as signature banks. I think they're going to take increasingly more action. So I'm not worried from that perspective. What I do think is a challenge for banks and you know, you go back to the 80s, this wasn't true. Back in the 80s, we had double-digit Fed funds rates. And you know what your checking account paid you? It paid you double digits. And they actually passed along the, the Fed rate hikes to their consumers. Do you know what your checking accounts now are paying you? Um, I mean, I'm mo moving back and forth money from my checking account to treasuries more than I've ever, I mean, I never did that before this, this last 
call it six months ago. Um, yeah. And, and, and now you, you know, you should, you know, and it's not because you're, you're fearing for the bank safety. It's because they're not paying you 5%, which is what they'll be paying you at the fed tomorrow. And so, you know, you should be buying, you know, is, is your money market fund get you close to 5%? Maybe that's the easiest thing. There's short duration treasury products. We have a treasury product USFR that has one week duration is floating rate treasuries. And it's the highest yielding treasury security that's there right now because of the inverted yield curve. So with one week duration, it is as, as, as a thoughtful thing for how do you manage your short duration cash as right. anything getting 5%. And so that is pressure for the banks. I mean, that's going to continue to be there. So they, right. now the banks should just pass along that. They should raise their, what they pay, that's raising their cost of capital. It's going to hurt their profits. Uh, which is why they're not doing it, you know, and yeah. so th th it's all about the net interest margins. I mean, there was a period there uh, during the pandemic where you were lucky if you got double digit basis point return uh, on accounts uh, when you saw rates uh, at this historic lows. Just a quick moment to remind you, today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by Crane Shares. Learn about their KRBN ETF at craneshares.com forward slash KRBN. Now, back to today's analysis. Uh, listen, I want to talk a little bit about banking since you bring it up. There are a couple of stories in the news cycle today. Uh, first one, First Republic rallying almost 30% on the day uh, on news of, uh, of this private sector potential investment. Remarks out from the uh, Secretary of Treasury, Janet Yellen, saying essentially that they are open to backstopping more depositors should the need arise, uh, hoping to, I would imagine, uh, send a signal to smaller banks, regional banks, that there is support in the event that it is needed. Uh, and finally, something that we were talking about a little bit off camera, this idea of what happened over at Credit Suisse, the idea of the AT1 bonds getting essentially wiped out. You and I were talking a little bit about this because I think this has confused a lot of people in terms of understanding the bank capital stack, how it works, who absorbs first losses, second losses, and why. Talk a little bit about that, Jeremy. Well, first I'll just say that they're, Yellen's eventually going to, they're going to need it. They need to do the, the higher deposit limit. So she's, she's playing the cards. It's going to come out eventually. They absolutely need it and because of this issue that we're talking about here about the 5% they need to pay deposits. Now, the, the capital structure, you know, it, for Europe, it's a very interesting, you saw, th this is one of the most interesting stories of this entire crisis and in, in, in Credit Suisse story. I mean, the Credit Suisse has been known to be an issue for a while. Uh, and, you know, you think about your traditional equity has different tiers. There's sort of preferred equity. There's common equity. The preferred equity tends to have some favoritism over the traditional commons, some other protections that get paid uh, and dividends paid ahead of the common equity. Um, you know, and common equity should be wiped out last. You know, preferred equity would have some preference. That's why it's called preferred preference over the traditional equity. Uh, and, you know, at the top, you see things like senior secured debt, the deposits, and then various levels of unsecured debt, subordinated debt. Then you have what's called tier two an additional tier one capital. And during some of the last financial crisis, there was questions of how can you automatically have some stabilizers and, and who you quote unquote bail in, who you wipe out so you make the capital more sustainable. And they, they called them contingent convertibles, contingent on certain things happening. Some of them were capital triggers. And so 
There's what's called core tier one capital in this sort of acronyms SETI, you know, SET1 or CET1, um, core tier one capital. And, you know, that level was something like 7%. And their numbers were at credit Suisse were like 14%. So you say, hey, this looked pretty safe. 14%, my buffer is seven. Unless there becomes some in in some of these documents, they had what's called temporary write downs and permanent write downs of the debt so that you can make these things more sustainable. And you know, one of the clauses in the Credit Suisse documents were if there's particular government intervention in support for it being a going concern, it could get wiped out. And so what you end up having this situation where, you know, automatically, you know, this this COCO contingent convertible bond was wiped out. It got zeroed out. It made it more sustainable bank because they had less debt. You know, the liabilities were, were automatically triggered. Uh, and, and then the equity values had some value. And, and you know, I, I was actually with an employee today of one of these banks who was paid in some of these things. And, and he was reading the documents closely and it was something they knew um, that that was, that was something that would happen. So it, it's interesting. Um, you know, I, I think... There's not a lot of vehicles that provide exposure to this. Our team in Europe was, you know, we've always tried to provide innovative exposures. Uh, you know, we, I mentioned that floating rate treasury year would issue that the day the governments are issuing those treasuries. And there was not a lot of direct access vehicles to this tier one capital. And, and we sort of had one of the broader, unique exposures. I think in times like this, uh, ETFs are really a great way to track what's going on in the market to get real-time pricing. You know, people have talked about even the high yield bond ETFs being indicative pricing where the bonds would trade because the bonds don't trade all that much. And then you can use right. the high yield ETF to see where the bond should be trading. And that's, I think, what was happening yesterday morning. Uh, you saw some of these, these usage strategies trade down 15%. And close closer to unchanged, or you know, a few percent down. You know, and, yeah, it and is it is fascinating to see these the difference in liquidity between the ETF and the underlying. I actually wrote a bit about this in my book with Harriet Krishnan uh, the last year to talk about precisely that point. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Liberty's leave policy was tremendous. Having the ability to take 16 weeks off, fully paid to bond with my child, was an incredible experience. At Liberty Mutual, you can find a career that supports you at every step, even baby steps. We offer up to 16 weeks parental leave for new moms and dads. And because not everyone's pathway to parenthood looks the same, we offer robust fertility, surrogacy, and adoption benefits too. Learn more at libertymutualcareers.com and pursue your tomorrow today. Listen, we've got a lot of questions that are flowing into us, and I know we've got only about five minutes left, but I would love to do a quick speed round with you, Jeremy, Please. to see if we can get some answers to these, some really interesting questions here. Uh, boy, this is a tough question to do in a speed round, but it's a good one. This one comes to us from Paul English. How will the commercial real estate train wreck get cleaned up? Uh, yeah, over time. I mean, it is it is, it is is an issue. I mean, I we definitely, as an example, went remote first. We used to have room for 150 people. Now we have room for 50 people. And you know how many people are here today? Maybe less than 10. Um, and right. you know, the work from home mentality works for us. Now, the question is, are we an outlier or are other companies going to do more of that? And so I think over time, I mean, I, so far, this this banking situation has really just been treasuries being marked to market. This has not been at all loan delinquencies or anything. So this 
you know, in, in many ways could be early in the banking dynamic, particularly as you get a slowdown and recession right. um, from the Fed being too tight. So I think it's an overtime situation and there's still a lot of issues, I think, in that that segment. Yeah, obviously, this is something that Real Vision has been dealing with as well. And I think we've landed in the same place that you have uh, over at Wisdom Tree, which is this idea that people like working from home. They're productive working from home. You get to save a lot of money on real estate. You get to reduce commuting time, uh, which means people can spend more time working and less time being miserable on New Jersey Transit uh, or the LIRR or Metro North or wherever. Win, win, win. It's a yeah, win, 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 win across the board. Exactly. Uh, here's a question that comes to us from Bo Nito. Uh, Ash is a fund manager. Does Jeremy have an opinion uh, of Biden's veto on the reverse ESG investing rule. It's interesting, and and it's obviously a, a polar topic in the U.S. We politicize everything in Europe. If you don't have ESG, well, let's tell people what it is uh, first. Yeah. So ESG is Environment, Social, Governance. That's what it stands for. There's been all sorts of filters for ESG rules um, and and compliance. And there's scores and certain sectors are viewed as, you know, you're, you could say tr trying to, what are polluters? So they kick out a lot of energy stocks in, in, in the governance. It's, you know, there's principles of the United Nations got 17 principles of, of conduct and standards. And, you know, there's firms like Sustainalytics bought by Morningstar that provide, are these companies violating these these 17 principles of you know sort of general standards? That's that's sort of like a a governance or a social score. Um, there's a lot of it focuses on the E because that's the most measurable. So what's happening right. environment? But some of it will be things like tobacco. Some of it will be things like controversial weapons. A lot of thermal coal, and so you screen out these things. And so the, there's been some pensions in the U.S because they're so focused on this ESG and you'll have a, a state, um, let's call it the red states who are not supporting some of those measures. And, you know, there's sort of backlash against the asset managers who have been so heavily focused on this ESG. Um, you know, but again, if you're in Europe, you need to have that as basic screening. I mean, that this is like a, a it's a very different mentality over there. And, 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 I, and I thought, well, hey, this, this war in Ukraine, is that going to change their standard? Like, maybe this will change what's a good controversial weapon. Maybe it's going to change right. what is their view on energy policy, because that got them into a big mess. Um, but apparently, it is not. Um, they are most, everything I've heard so far is, is still, it's like a requirement to be investing in Europe. Yeah, let me just read the tweet uh, from uh, the POTUS account. This is obviously President Biden. I just voted, vetoed my first bill. This bill would risk your retirement savings by making it illegal to consider risk factors MAGA House representatives, MAGA House Republicans don't like. Excuse me. Your plan manager should be able to protect your hard-earned savings, whether Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene likes it or not. Look, uh, I guess that's one view. I guess the uh, most objective thing that we can say about this is it's a very highly partisan statement. Yes, there's no question. I said it was being politicized. Um, I mean, and there is some, I mean, we've looked at a lot of the data. We have found some of the data signals and particularly or have companies that, with scores that have been improving um, sort of positive ESG momentum and something, uh, you know, I, I'm co-author with Professor Siegel on stocks for the long run. The sixth edition came out. We have a chapter on ESG. We quoted some research from Rockefeller, um, who has done a big study on ESG momentum, and it showed, you know, positive returns to those, um, you know, companies who had po 
positive ESG momentum scores. Now, you know, the key thing is, does this get priced into the stocks and do they start selling at higher multiples because there's demand for these things? Mm. Or is on the other side, is there become such a cheapness to energy because these ESG investors are shunning all these stocks that they then become a much better investment and perhaps energy supply hasn't been going up because there's been this lack of support and that's you know creating some of the the d- dynamics that make energy a much better investment because it's priced in right. a way that it does that so there's this esg trend but then you say what happens to the prices that reflect the forward-looking opportunities yeah and i think we just don't really have enough data to say definitively one way or another yet there's the argument that uh, you made there essentially that you have these forward-looking companies that are innovative uh that want to do things in new growth areas that they believe will be uh more efficient uh create greater opportunities and they get priced up conversely uh the opposite argument is that there are folks out there who fear that it's going to create macroeconomic distortions uh, where you have uh, the buy side uh, folks being penalized for making rational economic decisions uh, to meet sort of an arbitrary mandate in their view. At least that's how the argument goes as I see it. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see the future play out. And, you know, people have said Europe's ahead of the U.S. We'll see how much more comes, but it clearly is going to be politicized in the U.S., whereas in in Europe, it's just a very different mentality. Jeremy, spectacular show. I hope we can have you back again soon. You know, anytime. I'm happy to. uh, I always enjoy talking with you guys. This was a great conversation. A lot of depth, a lot of detail. And we also covered the news cycle as well. Thanks so much for joining us. Really enjoyed this. Thanks, Ash. Hey, thanks again for watching Real Vision Daily Briefing. Tomorrow, we'll be back with Darius Dale, Michael Kulbaugh, and Andreas Stennis Larson. Please, looking forward to seeing you. Join us again then. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest and biggest names in finance.